Welcome to Episode 18 of the FarmExec Podcast. I'm Michelle Mascali, Senior Editor of FarmExec. And I'm Kristen Harm, Associate Editor of FarmExec. For those of you joining us for the first time, Pharmaceutical Executive is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. So Kristen, what are we talking about on this episode? Today we have Chris Boone with us. Uh, we're pretty excited to showcase him on the podcast because he's one of FarmExec's 2018 Emerging Pharma Leaders. I had the opportunity to interview Chris, and he really gives some great insight both on the podcast and in his article on our website about preparing for roles that don't currently exist in pharma, how to be a champion for new ideas, and he talks a lot about the importance of authenticity in the workplace. So let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Chris. What's up? The up-and-coming pharma and biotech leaders. You know, like how they got their start in the industry, why they picked the career they're in now, how they lead their teams, and predictions for what they think the future of the industry will look like. Actually, it's funny that you bring that up because it's time for PharmExec's annual Emerging Pharma Leaders program. All that you have to do is check out our website to read profiles on this year's class of leaders from across the world who are making an impact in the areas of biotech and pharma. Check out PharmaExec.com for more. Hey, listeners. Today is a very special podcast as we have the first of this year's class of PharmaExec Emerging Pharma Leaders joining us. Christopher Boone is the head of Real World Data and Analytics Center of Excellence at Pfizer. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. So, Michelle, you interviewed Chris for this year's EPL feature, correct? I did. Um, it was a pleasure to speak with Chris for our feature on this year's EPL, which actually can be found on our website at farmexec.com. And one of the things I found most interesting about Chris is that he's in a job that didn't even exist 10 years ago. But before we get to that, Chris, can you briefly tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I mean, as you stated, I am the head of Real World Data and Analytics at Pfizer. Um, I would consider myself to be a non-traditional pharma executive, meaning that I actually grew up in the world of hospitals and health systems actually doing informatics. So, uh, you know, I, I always tell people that I started off in a career that was uh, in informatics, and it wasn't as sexy then as, as one would say it is now. We were still in the basement of most hospitals, but really the the primary motivation for that was mostly not to be in the world of health informatics or health IT, but to really become an administrator of the hospital health system. Um, you know, I, I guess, you know, if you read the article, you'll see that I basically grew up in a, a low-income neighborhood in Dallas called Oak Cliff, and uh, I personally got to witness firsthand my mother struggle with, uh, with her lupus and getting care in an area that was pretty, we'll say, uh, uh, negligent, uh, the, the community was absent of any effective and high-quality hospitals, and, and there was a pretty large community. So when we when we see the struggle, we have to actually find the best care for her in, in, uh, in different neighborhoods uh, in some cases, or she had to, or we had to settle for what we had. But it was really at that time that I knew that someone had to make a change, and I thought that the best path for me to 
seek that level of transformation in our neighborhood was to do it myself. And so I figured I would be president and CEO of a health system. I would help treat these uh, underserved communities and um, and the rest is history. But, you know, it was really kind of interesting when I actually got into the world of hospitals and, and health systems, I quickly realized that my greatest talent was in leading uh, digital and data and technology transformation. Uh, and that in and of itself would be much more transformational uh, for the industry. But more importantly, I could actually reach uh, more patients. And so that is how um, I ended up where I am today. You've had a pretty interesting career path. What sparked your interest in public health and data? Was it primarily your mom's lupus, or is there a little bit more to it? Yeah, it was It was really primarily her lupus. I mean, and it started with the inability to effectively share data across different providers. Um, and what that was a clear indication of is that the data really wasn't being utilized. It was just more of a, a documentation uh, a mechanism for that individual doc. Um, but if they weren't sharing the data with other doctors and they weren't using that information to make uh, action-oriented uh, or actionable decisions, then you really aren't improving the uh, the state of care or the quality of care given to each of the patients. So really, my thinking was, was A, first of all, we need to share the data. Secondly, the, the data needs to be uh, in a format that many of these uh, care providers could actually utilize it. And then, you know, and since we're capturing the data anyway, why not get smarter from it? and make more informed clinical decisions. And, and that is really has been always my motivation, and, and it still is. It remains my motivation um, to, to how we can more effectively utilize uh, healthcare data and decision-making in all aspects of healthcare, just I mean, whether it be from clinical, from bedside care, to either payer, uh, provider, uh, payer decisions, to policy decisions, and even where I am now as it pertains to clinical research and how we uh, incorporate that patient voice into everything we do in pharma. So I alluded to this a little bit before. Uh, you're actually in a job that didn't exist just a few years ago, and that presents a number of different challenges, including getting buy-in from colleagues through this new initiative, something I've had to do a number of times at various jobs, and it's not always easy. So tell us how you approached this new position and became a champion for your team and the use of data with the rest of the company. Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, that, that that I have to say is probably the number one challenge that, you know, we face in the roles that we're in. I mean, as you described or as you alluded to, the role did not exist 10 years ago. So you really are talking about a role where most uh, C-suite executives or senior leadership are still trying to understand the value that it brings um, to their organization. And that, that value is still associated primarily with top or bottom line impact. Um, so we, we kind of have this unique challenge of, how do you justify your own existence in many respects, and how do you make that big splash? So I would say that, honestly, for me, I spend a vast majority of my time um, in the cultural transformation aspect of, of what uh, real-world data and real-world evidence can bring to a pharma company. So, And that, and that requires a lot of, um, I like to say, evangelism, education, um, inspiration, uh, planning, envisioning, you know, what the future could be, and then you, you want to develop strategies that, that go along with that. Um, so really, uh, if you can really formulate a clear vision and sell that vision to the organization, that's going to probably be one of the greater skill sets. Uh, and, but the vision has to be, um, I think more people get caught up in these kind of theoretical aspirations 
um, that really aren't as practical um, as they should be. And, you know, and every organization is different. Thus, every organizational culture is different. And you have to find the, the right balance between uh, that aspiration and what can be practically done within your organization. Um, so that is uh, one of the greater challenges. You've actually been a champion of data in the health and pharma industries for a while, and you've even served as CEO of the Health Data Consortium, which is a public-private partnership working with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, for those who don't know, which was focused on expanding open health data and open government movements in the U.S. So how have you seen the merging of pharma and data progress, and where do you think it will go in the future? Well, I, you know, honestly, I, I think it's going to only progress even more so than it is right now. Um, I think the whole healthcare industry is undergoing a transformation, not just a single sector. We all have, we, we, you know, historically it's been very siloed, very fragmented as it pertains to each sector within the industry, and we were very much engaging on a transactional basis, you know, right? Manufacturers were selling things, you know, these guys were buying things, other people were using things. Um, so on and so forth. But what, right now what you're seeing is truly a cross-pollinization of, of each sector within the industry where we all realize that we, can all, we, we must uh, work together uh, and, we, and we must keep this patient-centric philosophy at the forefront at all times. And, um, and so now you're seeing these very unique collaborations and alliances being formed. And in some cases, you're seeing outright acquisitions of, uh, that we would have never thought of 15 or 20 years ago. But, uh, so I think the industry itself is undergoing this, this, this really critical transformation. And, and what that necessitates, again, is that organizational transformation or cultural transformation within each, uh, with each, and each company to be more receptive to those types of strategic collaborations that, um, are, for all intents and purposes, are, are counter to what we've seen and have done in the past. And it's, it's strange because, you know, Pharma has always had this kind of outsider-looking-in um, view on the rest of the healthcare world, and I think a large part of that is the lack of trust that exists across the different sectors that we must address uh, uh, at some point to, re- to, to, to really become part of that ecosystem to feel as though we're all in this together. So when it comes to data, what is the most challenging issue facing those in the pharmacy suite, and how do they tackle it? Yeah, I mean, for us, the biggest challenge when it comes to real-world data specifically is um, our access and the availability of it. So our access to it and and the availability of the types of data we need to conduct clinical research in order to demonstrate uh, the value of of our medicines. Um, I think that uh, real-world data is, is is a new area where we don't necessarily generate that data. That data is primarily generated through the patient, provider, and the payers. Um, but we need that data in order to conduct many of the real-world data studies that we choose to embark on. Um, and so I do see a model and I do see uh, an opportunity that there is for us to co-create uh, that evidence um, with many of those other stakeholder groups. Um, and, and, that, and, and obviously the big challenge there is the, the trust um, to, to formulate those types of collaborative relationships. Um, but for us, uh, data access or data accessibility and data availability. And then the third thing I would add to that is data integrity. So you have access to the data. You have to make sure that the data that you need is available, but 
but then you have to ensure the integrity or quality of the data is there so that we could actually produce the uh, regulatory-grade evidence that we need to uh, produce to justify uh, any other decisions thereafter. Chris, you're also an adjunct professor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where do you um, teach again and what subjects? Yeah, so I, I am an adjunct professor at the University of Cincinnati in their uh, Master's in Health Healthcare Informatics program. Um, I have the great fortune of teaching courses that range from introductory uh, introduction to health, health informatics. You can almost view that as health informatics one-on-one. Um, I also teach the uh, advanced um, data database design, uh, which is more focused on building data infrastructures that would support um, this type of aggregation and analysis of, of healthcare data, uh, and then also teach a, uh, a course around um, healthcare analytics, um, which is uh, very much so that one course that you're talking about data warehouses and data environments is one thing, but then you actually talk about the pure analytics, which is applying analytical methods to that data and, and producing a certain outcome. Given your experiences and how fast things are changing in the industry, how do you prepare your students for a successful career? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's funny because, you know, one would assume that I'm a data scientist, and, and uh, uh, the truth is, <laughs> the reality is, I'm a social scientist who just happens to uh, specialize in, uh, in health data. And so really when I'm thinking about, uh, uh, you know, the individual student, and the future of the healthcare workforce and the trends I see happening, I always think about the whole person. And I think Jack Ma, the founder of uh, Alibaba, um, was at the World Economic Forum earlier this year. He, and he said it best, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I've practiced this philosophy, but I didn't, I've never articulated the way he did it. And he basically said that um, everything we teach should be different from the machines. And what he was speaking of, you know, obviously being a technologist himself, is this push towards automation and artificial intelligence and how the future of the world looks and the skills that we need to equip our students with and, and even our adult learners with um, in order to operate in this new world. And, uh, and essentially that is totally aligned with my thinking that, you know, much of, much of the automation will be a lot of, our, you know, pretty much our routine um Practices or analytical processes that we that we have to do today, but they, those roles may not exist five to ten years from now. So to me, it's all about molding and shaping and building up. Um, I think more the softer skills of the student. Um, I think that they should be able to uh, uh, effectively function in a team environment. So that type of collaboration. I think that they should be. Uh, there should be a heavy emphasis on their ability to think critically and think creatively, uh, meaning that they can assess the situation, clearly identify the problems, and, and, and generate new ideas to address um, those particular situations. I think um, exercising uh, that that kind of intellectual curiosity muscle that we all have is going to be extremely important. And because there's a certain uh, agility that one needs to have. We know the world is going to continue to change, and that speed of change is only going to increase. So having that level of intellectual curiosity and agility is going to be important. And the last thing that I would say um, that I try to push and, and it's probably most important is this idea around leadership. And, uh, and there are several attributes of great leaders uh, and I've always, always, always been a student of leadership. And so I can't emphasize that enough 
to uh, to the students how critical that particular skill is, especially in these more technical fields where you're communicating with non-technical people. And uh, and so that, those are the things that I emphasize in my courses. So, Chris, one of the things that really stood out to me um, and I thought was interesting when we were doing your EPL interview was that you told me about how you have mentors that sometimes don't realize they're your mentors. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I think when it comes to this idea of leadership, you know, I feel like there are certain things that we have that are natural or intrinsic in our own personalities and nature, but there are other things that really need to be, that can be taught and should be shaped and molded. And so I always have this uh, affinity towards uh, great leaders that I would identify and I would uh, routinely and continuously ask questions to. And so I, I learned very early on that some people are very, very much intimidated when you say, hey, I want you to be my mentor because they think there's a certain expectation or obligation that's associated with that, that type of relationship. And so they're, they're usually, you know, some people, not all, are, um, are very uncomfortable with the, with the title mentor. Um, so what I, what, what I learned is that I would never use the term mentor at all. I would just say, uh, hey, do you mind if I reach out to you from time to time to ask you specific questions? And whether they knew it or not, they were my adopted mentor, and they became part of my uh, council of mentors that I could um, certainly uh, reach out to to ask very targeted questions about different aspects. I, you know, and, and the thing that I think is extremely important for people to realize is that there is not a single mentor that can address every single question, issue uh, that one deals with. And, 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 what, and, and another important thing, and I had a mentor share this with me very early in my career, is that the personal and the human side of a leader is as critical as the professional side. You know, the last thing you want to do is go into these worlds of being a, a great leader and, and you're so robotic and you're so out of touch with the, at the basic human need, which is kind of what Jack, Jack Ma was alluding to, that you cannot relate and therefore you cannot lead. And so, uh, so I personally always had great mentors in my personal and professional lives that allowed me to continuously grow as an individual. And I hope that that, uh, somewhat is, um, you just hope that that leadership oozes out of your pores and you're able to inspire and influence people to move in the direction that you know, uh, the organization needs to move into. Um, so the, my council of mentors, um, some don't know that they're in there, so I won't I won't add them. <laughs> um, but I will say that uh, has been probably uh, the greatest uh, uh, move or decision I could have made, professional decision I could have made for myself. That's really great, and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners could relate to that. Um, before we wrap up, we can't not talk about your Twitter handle, which <laughs> we all love over here at FarmingZac. So can you tell us about how that name came about? <laughs> yeah, it was about I was leading the Health Data Consortium, uh, and, and, you know, I started leading it over the 2014. And it was so funny. I was having these different conversations with people, and they go, you know, you really have this love for data, and, like, you're pushing for it, and it's almost like you're kind of like a hippie or something, right? And then I said, you know, huh. And I, it just struck me, like, Data hippie, and I was like, it was it was kind of very uncharacteristic of me to like brand myself or something like that. And if you read some of the articles out there online that talk about it, uh, one guy told me that uh, you know I, I I by no means fit the profile of a hippie, uh, which I thought made it that much more hilarious and fun to play with. Um, but I thought the principles of evangelizing this whole idea 
of data and being this, this patient advocate who wanted to see the system transform using data to impact the patient experience, um, it aligned. And so, uh, so it stuck. And so I've been using that as more of a movement um, towards, uh, you know, democratizing data for the public good. And, and, uh, and I've always advocated in the mantra, then you have to put the data back in the hands of the patient. Now, it's great that we're having many of these discussions now, but that's something that I started, uh, you know, speaking to, uh, speaking to years ago. I've always felt that the data was the property of the patient and they should be the stewards of that data. Um, you know, and, you know, I know some people hate to hear that, you know, <laughs> um, but, but that was my firm belief and I thought that that is the, that was the most sound approach to effectively transforming the system. And, uh, and so thus data hippie and my, my, uh, the idea of it was to not to be a single data hippie, you know, but the idea was to create a movement of data hippies, um, that we could all transform the system. And that's, that's really where the name came from and it stuck. That's awesome. We we love that name. We think it's really funny. Um, yes. So thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. We really appreciate you taking the time out. That's great. So thank you. Um, this has been fun, and I really greatly appreciate the opportunity, and I'm humbled by the acknowledgement to be part of this year's class. Well, thanks, Chris. We're happy to have you. Uh, just as a reminder to our listeners, if you want to learn more about Chris and the rest of our 2018 Emerging Pharma Leaders roster, you can read about them on our website at pharmaexec.com. And now it's time for this week's leadership tip from Pharma Execs. Great. This is Chris Boone. I'm the Vice President and Head of the Global Rural Evidence Center of Excellence at Pfizer, also known as the Real World Data and Analytics Center of Excellence. And my leadership tip for everyone is to, it's, it's twofold. First thing is, is that you certainly want to formulate, create a very strong, robust council of mentors to ensure that you stay grounded, but more importantly, to help guide you through your career. The next thing that I would say is something that was shared with me um, at a very early age, uh, and I will attribute it to my, uh, my late grandmother, who always used to describe life as being in three states, right? You either coming out of something, you're either going through something, or you're about to go into something. And the important lesson there is to recognize that you're always in the process of, of going through something. So it's all about perspective. And um, so I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the PharmExec staff is working on. Remember that you can always find us on the web at PharmExec.com, on Twitter at PharmExec, or on Instagram at PharmExecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of PharmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director lisa.henderson at ubm.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at todd.baker at ubm.com.